The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show today. I've been around the world of personal growth and human development for over a decade now, and I've been able to meet some really amazing people. And one of them was a woman named Immaculate Illibagiza, and she wrote a book in 2006 called Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust. And this book was a big deal uh, during my Hay House days, just such an incredible story. And it described her experience in 1994 when most of her family was brutally murdered during a killing spree that lasted three months. And Immaculate survived this by hiding with some other women in a bathroom of a local pastor as machete-wielding killers hunted for her. And she could hear them calling her name right outside the window. It's just chilling. And it was during those hours of terror that Immaculate discovered the power of prayer and was able to release her fear of death. And she emerged from that bathroom hideout, having discovered the meaning of unconditional love, a love so strong that she was able to seek out her family's killers and offer them forgiveness. And I was so moved by that story. And when I met her in person, I was struck by her calm and presence around people, just a beautiful person. And she continues to speak and lead retreats for people looking to access this kind of love and forgiveness in their own lives. And if you've never read her story, I do urge you to seek it out, left to tell. Well, my guest today, Steve Taylor, has studied people like Immaculate and has collected some of these life-changing stories in his book, Extraordinary Awakenings. And it's a compelling investigation of how intense psychological suffering can lead to a dramatic shift into a new identity. And Steve is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University, the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychological Society, and the author of many best-selling books. And he was gracious enough to join me today from his home in the UK. And thanks for taking the time, Steve. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Great to be with you, Diane. Have you ever heard of Immaculate's story? I haven't actually, no. It sounds like a wonderful story. Sounds very inspiring. So I'll, I'll definitely check out her book. 
it is. It's it's incredible, and it really struck me when I read that um, those years ago. And you've been studying these kinds of experiences for many years, and I'm curious about what made you want to explore this side of psychology rather than the other end of the spectrum, rather than people who do, you know, horrible things. Like I, I have to confess an interest in listening to like murder podcasts and, you know, serial killers and things like that. Very dark. And I always wonder, what are they thinking? Why do they do this? But you wanted to study the other end of the spectrum. That's true. I'm interested in um, kind of psychopathy too. I am interested in the negative side of the spectrum too. But um, it's always seemed to me that human beings underestimate their potential. You know, there's there's an incredible reserve of resilience and, and strength inside us that we normally don't gain access to. You know, when when our lives are running smoothly and comfortably, we don't really we, we only really scratch the surface of our potential. But when we are challenged by crises, by turmoil, by obstacles in our lives, then we we dive deep down inside ourselves and we draw on this amazing resilience and potential. So I've always been interested in, you know, how how can we gain access to that potential and how does that potential manifest itself in our lives? It's so fascinating and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this subject and you call this phenomenon transformation through turmoil. And it and like you're saying it comes out of kind of being pushed to that to that limit to such an extraordinary degree that actual transformation can take take place. But you have to go through this turmoil, right? Can can you elaborate on that a little? That's right. Um I think it's about the breakdown of the normal ego. When we go through intense turmoil, whether it's due to um, you know serious illness or a bereavement, addiction, depression, even incarceration or you know military combat, all of these situations they're so traumatic that they can break down our normal identity. You know, for, for example, if you're an addict, you know, over the many years of an addiction, your identity can slowly erode away because all of the all of the things you're attached to all of the things that give you a sense of identity are slowly broken down like your ambitions your status your friendships your roles and so forth but but at a certain point when it all breaks down there's a new self which emerges inside people it's almost as if there's a kind of sleeping spiritually awakened self dormant inside a lot of people and once the normal ego breaks down in these times of suffering, the spiritually awakened self can emerge like, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. But what's interesting about that is if, if we're aware of that state being available to us, we can try to access it through other means of not going through a horrible experience. That's possible? That's true. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to go through great suffering in order to go, undergo spiritual awakening. That would be pretty pessimistic if that was the case. But it's, it's just one route to spiritual awakening. There are, there are other routes to spiritual awakening. For probably the most popular way of undergoing spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening is a, a long process of, of gradual change you know, due to following spiritual practices, spiritual paths, you know, or just going through certain experiences in your life that can have a an awakening effect. So yeah, it's just, it's just one path. And you mentioned some of these in the book and and we can talk about those too. And I wanted to see how uh, transformation through turmoil, which you call TTT through the book. uh, This is different from something else that you bring up called post-traumatic growth. 
And what's the difference between those two? Post-traumatic growth is a, is a very well-researched concept in, in mainstream psychology, uh, and it illustrates that traumatic experiences, for, for a quite a large number of people, I think they say the research suggests between a third and a half of people undergo post-traumatic growth. So in the aftermath of traumatic experiences like bereavement or, or divorce or you know, depression, addiction, and so on, you know, a significant number of people will undergo positive changes, even if they take years to manifest themselves. So they'll become more appreciative of their lives. They'll have deeper relationships. And they'll have a, a, an increased sense of confidence and resilience and so on. So that's a very, very, very well-researched concept. So what I call transformation through turmoil is similar. You could say it's a, it's a type of post-traumatic growth, but it's much more dramatic and extreme. It normally happens in a sudden moment of transformation, which is why it's, it's basically, you know, you could call it a spiritual awakening. And it changes people in an incredibly dramatic and fundamental way so that people sometimes feel that they are, they are different people living in the same body. There's such a, a radical shift in identity. And they often have a hard time re-engaging with society that they knew previously, family and friends and things like that. That's right, because it's like they've been born again and they have to readjust to life, you know, and um, for their partners, it's sometimes as if they're together with a completely different person. It's like they've, they've suddenly married to a different person. So it can be, you know, there's, there's suddenly a gulf there and their friends don't understand them. They think their friends normally think they're crazy. Uh, so they, they, they have to sort of build new friendships, build new relationships. But most of all, they have to create a context or a framework to make sense of what's happened to them because a lot of them don't have any background in spirituality. So they think, you know, they know that they feel different. They know, they know they feel great. They feel connected and they feel a sense of well-being, a sense of appreciation, but they don't really understand what's happened to them. So the, part of them thinks, you know, have I gone crazy? What's happened to me? So it takes them a while, sometimes even years, you know, to make sense of what's happened to them. And many people that shared their stories with you in the book, a lot of times was this the first time that they really spoke about their experience? Yes, that's true. Some people read one of my earlier books. I read a book called The, the Leap, which, is, uh, which is, has a subtitle, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. So some people contacted me after reading, reading that book and said, you know what, I, I think I've had a spirit, an experience of spiritual awakening, but I've never talked about it to anybody because I was afraid that people would think I was crazy. So yeah, in, in some cases, it was the first time they talked about it. And there are some similarities in the experiences, almost like there's similarities when you read about a near-death experience, where mm. some people see the light at the end of the tunnel or the feeling of, of great love and acceptance. Um, but these transformations are different from what you know, Maslow would ca had called a peak experience. Or, or are they are they similar? What do you think they're about similar. that? They're um, similar. They're similar, but Maslow described peak experiences as temporary experiences. They're like a, a you know a, a brief glimpse of a of a more expansive spiritual reality. But these experiences are, are permanent. That people shift into an ongoing state of spiritual awakening, which some well, you know it lasts indefinitely for the rest of their lives. Right. They're they're shifters. You call them shifters in the book. Yeah which I think is great. So I'm curious though, 
a lot of I've been reading a lot of about renewed interest in the use of psychedelics and shifting people's awareness to release their fear of death, for example, you know, people that are in hospice and then they'll, you know, have this psychedelic experience with psilocybin, you know, or DMT or something like that, or also a lot of work with soldiers, you know, coming back from an experience with PTSD or something like that. Do you think that the transformation experience initiated, initiated by an outside element like psychedelics or DMT is it a different kind of ex transformational experience? It is slightly different. And I think when a person takes psychedelics, it, you know, it's, it's basically a peak experience. It, it's a usually a temporary experience. It gives them a glimpse of a wider reality. I actually like the term, you know, peak has two meanings. There's peak as in climbing a mountain and also peak as in sort of glimpsing into something different. So these, these experiences are peak experiences in the sense that people suddenly gain access to this wider reality. They, they glimpse or peek into this more expansive, more beautiful, um, you know, this strange and wonderful new reality. And glimpsing that new reality has transformational effects. People are never usually this, quite the same again. I think it was Aldous Huxley who, who said that, you know, once you've been through the door, um, you can never fully come back into the, the room you've left. And everything, everything is slightly different. But, you know, it's not the same. It doesn't usually have the same deep-rooted transformational effects as um, transformation through turmoil. Because people normally return to, you know, an, an ordinary state of consciousness. It's just that they have a different frame of reference. They have a different view of reality. But, that, but after a psychedelic trip is over, people normally return to the same sense of self. Basically the same, even though, you know, there's slight variations, but it's the same essential self, but with a different perspective. Right. So that lasting transformation won't necessarily take place. So no. have you had that experience? Did you ever try that? What, psychedelics? Yes. Well, I'm in the house with my children, so. <laughs> I mean, not recently, like <laughs> like yesterday. But no. I mean, I, like now being in my 50s, I mean, I I did it when I was younger, you know, in my 20s, but I just ended up sitting in a tree for eight mm. hours with a friend of mine and, and it was pleasant. We laughed and it was fun but I didn't see like the face of God or anything like that. Like it wasn't, like no. you said, a transformation experience. I may have got a glimpse, but now that I'm older, I'm more curious to have that spiritual transformation and really feel that. So I'm thinking, well, what if I do it now? So <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I was wondering if you had had that experience. Yeah, I had a few experiences when I was younger, but they, they kind of... Um... You know, they were kind of, they weren't so revelatory to me because I'd ha I had those kind of experiences without psychedelics anyway. You know, from a young age, I felt this really strong sense of connection to nature, and I'd have moments when my surroundings would become incredibly real and beautiful, and I would feel a sense of connection to everything around me, and this feeling that the world was filled with radiance or harmony. So when I when I tried psychedelics, it kind of just gave me the same experience. You know, it was sort of Slightly different, but it was it was it was, it was, it was, as, if, it was as if I was sort of entering the same kind of landscape which I'd already explored, you know, from a slightly different perspective. Right, like I remember seeing the my senses were certainly heightened, where colors were beautiful, the leaves on the tree were beautiful, the clouds, you know, all of that, and I felt a great mm. sense of of well being and, and peace and all of that. But at the yeah. time, I, you know, I was just looking to have fun, not to have the, a spiritual experience. 
Yeah, it's a lot to do with intention, isn't it? You know, yes. A lot of the original psychedelic um, teachers said that, uh, you know, you have to, it's a journey that you have to embark on with the right intention. Right. I mean, there's more study going into that today in helping people with depression and things like that. So I'm, in, I'm interested to see yeah. where that goes. Yeah, this, yeah, there's really interesting research going on. And, you know, the, the preliminary findings are that psychedelics do have a profound therapeutic effect. Well, I'm also interested in the accounts. There's a lot of great stories that you share in the book, accounts of people in prison and the awakenings that were achieved. And what do you think is the tipping point with those people that achieved that that space? And then there's other people that they'll just go the other way and it's kind of dog eat dog, you know, kill or be killed in, in that mm. situation. They they don't they don't make that shift, you know? Yeah, that's a good point because, I mean, you know, if you take uh, prison, for example, you know, a certain number of prisoners do undergo spiritual development, spiritual awakening. It's probably, you know, more common than we think, but probably not the majority. Same with um, military combat. Some soldiers go through spiritual awakenings, but again, it's, it's not common. It's just a, a small minority. So, yeah, there are, there are obviously different factors. Um, I think one of them is... You know, in order to undergo transformation, you have to be able to enter your own being and explore your own being. And most people are so externally focused. You know, we, we partly due to social conditioning, we live in a world of constant activity and distraction. A lot of people are just not able to go inside their own mental space and kind of rest there and explore their own mental space. They're just not used to it. It's like a a strange domain that they've never explored and they don't feel acclimatized to to their inner space. But I, I found in my research that, you know, soldiers, for example, some soldiers, you know, because of the sheer stress of their environment, they would they would kind of have a sense that they needed to go inside because that was the only place where they would find any peace. Same with prisoners, you know, it's such a you know turbulent, aggressive environment in prison that some prisoners realize that the only w- possible way of finding any peace is to go inside. So they would, they would do that. And once you go inside, it's, it's like, a, you know, it's like a, a, an amazing discovery. You suddenly discover this new realm, this new continent you know, that you can explore. And so, so a lot of prisoners and soldiers do start to meditate spontaneously, even, though the, even if they don't know what meditation is. They start to just sit in quietness and close their eyes and just sort of rest inside themselves. And that's the beginning of transformation. Another factor is um, I found that it's very important to to face the turmoil that you're in with an attitude of acknowledgement and acceptance. You have to sort of embrace it rather than resisting it, rather than trying to push it away. You have to face up to the reality of it and also surrender to let go and just open yourself to it. That would um, bring transformation. So that's a big key then. You have to really accept the situation that you're in, okay, this is unchanging. I'm in this cell or I'm in Mm. this place of combat. And then you're able to access some part of you that no one can ever take away. No one can ever remove that experience. That's right. And interestingly, in in prison, transformations tend to take place with long-term prisoners because people who have short sentences you know, they can think to themselves, okay, you know, I'm going to be out soon. I'll just pass the time. I'll just sleep as much as possible and it'll be, I'll be back out in society soon. But if you have a long-term prison sentence, you have to face up to the enormity 
of the situation, you have to accept that it's going to be, you could be maybe for the rest of your life, you're going to be in prison. So you have to try to accept it. You have to acknowledge it and try to accept it. Right. And yeah. And, and as I say, that is often the beginning of, of transformation. And you hear, you hear about jailhouse conversions often, you know, someone that will become, you know, full on accept uh, the Muslim faith or Christian faith to where they become ministers and, and things like that. And a lot of people are very skeptical of those experiences. But mm. from what you're writing about in your in your research, that they actually can be very valid what they're yeah. what they're going through. It's not just fake to get out of prison. That's right. And it's actually a, a very different experience to religious conversion. It, it is a born again experience, but it's nothing to do with religion. It's it's nothing to do with taking on taking on a set of beliefs or a new frame of reference for reality. It's nothing to do with concepts or beliefs. It's about, you know, emptying yourself of concepts and beliefs. It's an experience. So it's totally non-conceptual. And that, that's the main difference between, you know, between transformation through turmoil and religious born again experiences. Do you think in the case of the people in prison that I know a lot of prisons are loud, but if you're in a place of solitary confinement and being in silence and you, in the book, you write about it much like a monk. And I actually just interviewed a monk recently. He's in the, um, yeah, the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. He's been a monk since he was 17 or 18. And I, it's just amazing that, (laughs) that there's people that are still living like that, you know, in this day and age, but you write about accepting silence, you know, and being able to be comfortable in that. And in this world, that's very difficult to find. I, I crave silence. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why prison can be a transformational place. Because it's, it is it is a place where you have access, you have a lot of access to solitude. And, and even though the environment around you is turbulent, there is, uh, well, you, you might be in solitary confinement, but you have a lot of inactivity. You have a lot of time to explore yourself. I think one of the most important things about prison and the strong parallel between prison and monasteries is that it's a place where you let go. It's a place where attachments dissolve away because, um, you know, monks go to monasteries to separate themselves from the world, to let go of possessions and ambitions and attachments. Uh, and, and, and in a strange way, the same thing happens in prison. But I mean, I mean, for most people, it's intensely uncomfortable. But when you go to prison, you you let go of your identity because everything which gives you identity is outside, is on the other, on the other side of the prison walls. You know, your possessions, your status, your relationships, and so forth. So you have to let go of all of those things. And and even though for many prisoners that's that's very uncomfortable, I think that's one of the main reasons why prison is a punishment because it's, it involves letting go of all these things. But for other people, it can be a liberation. Because when you let go of all of these attachments and where when your normal ego identity does, dissolves away, then a new spiritually awakened self can arise inside you. Yes, I think that's so interesting. One of the questions that was asked of this monk, his name's Brother Paul, is what is the purpose of a contemplative life in the 21st century? Like what, what could be the purpose of being a monk? What can we learn from that? And his answer was, the purpose of life is there is no purpose. Your life <laughs> living is the purpose. And I said, you mean I can let go of all this stuff and just live and not have to worry about it? And he's like, yes. And I thought that mm. was interesting because 
you know, he was showing that you don't need all those attachments like you talk about in the book. And he's been living like that for so long that it's, it's natural for him. But people ask him like, what, what worth, what, what purpose could your, could it be to be a monk? But actually there is a purpose. He's showing us that. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a strange deep contentment, which arises when we, when we do let go of of, um, all of these attachments. And when we do live quietly you know, in contempl- in, and in contemplation, you, you can't really understand unless you experience it yourself. It's difficult to understand, but it's a really deep, rich sense of well-being, which justifies justifies life in itself. You know, you don't need to achieve things, you don't need to run around pretending to be important and you know trying to accumulate money and status. This feeling, this sense of well-being, is enough in itself. Yes. And that's, that's what he was saying. He's, he's very happy and he Mm. doesn't need to look outward to find that validation of success that a lot of us, so many of us are looking for because they have jobs in the monastery. Like one of his was to make fudge and he (laughs) found a lot of, uh, contentment and, uh, and happiness in, in making really great fudge that they sell at the Abbey (laughs) and, and any task that he had, he would embrace it in in doing it well, and he was happy with that. And I thought, how yeah, nice to not yeah. have those it's attachments lovely. of worrying about, you know, like, is anyone going to listen to this radio show <laughs> that, that you and yeah. I are doing? You is know, anybody going to buy my books? <laughs> right. Will <laughs> yeah. anyone buy our, buy books? Do do people care? What's the point? You know, and then you yeah. can spiral into into all of that. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious where. How did you find a lot of the people that you spoke to in the book, the ones that you call the shifters, you know, to share these experiences? Did you just send out emails or talk to people? And um, It was a, a variety of sources, really. But I have a, a strange sort of um, phenomenon that, that sometimes happens when I write books. It just seems to sort of happen, unfold of its own accord. And I don't I have to try very hard, but things seem to sort of naturally gravitate towards me and it seems to naturally work out. So people would just contact me randomly and said and just say, "Hey, you know, I've read about your work and I wanted to, I wanted to I wanted to tell you about this amazing transformation that I've been through." And I thought, "Wow, yeah, this is somebody I could use in my book. It's perfect for my book." So there quite there were quite a few of those instances, and and and, and also friends would say to me, "Oh, there's somebody you've got to meet. I've, I've I've heard about this guy, this amazing guy, or I know this amazing guy. You really need to speak to him, and you know he would be great for your book." So it was. It was a combination of um, you know accident and uh, synchronicity. But once you got in touch with these people, they really wanted to talk about what happened to them and really share the experience because it was so profound. That's right. You know, and, and in some cases, as we mentioned before, they'd never talked about it before. So there was a feeling of release from them that they could express it and, and tell me about it. But also when people go through this experience, they become very altruistic. They lose, they shift out of a mode of, um, you know, well, I think one person described it as shifting out of a mode of trying to get things from life to trying to give to life, you know, trying to, not trying to take from life, but trying to give to life. So they, they had a feeling that they could help other people too by telling their stories. I think they, most people are aware that, you know, from their own experience that they go through this transformation, it takes them a while to integrate it and to understand it and to adjust to it. So they wanted to help other people who are going who are going through the same experience. I'm talking with Steve Taylor about his fascinating new book, Extraordinary Awakenings: When Trauma 
leads to transformation. And you can also find him online at stephenmtaylor.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back after the break. I'm talking with Steve Taylor about his book, Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. Just sharing some incredible information here about experiences that people have that can lead them to states of incredible spiritual awakening. Their lives are never the same after this. And I wanted to ask you about some of these transformation experiences that may be disturbing or negative. I mean, I've read of distressing NDEs, near-death experiences where these people are saying, there isn't a white light. I didn't see any of that. I didn't feel any love or peace. I mean, what do you you think of that if if it's not a positive experience? Yeah, I've read some of those reports of uh, negative NDEs. But in, in my research, I didn't really come across anybody who had such a negative experience there were some challenging aspects to the experiences, but they were mainly to, due to the fact that the the transformations could be quite explosive. In some cases, they could be quite explosive and dramatic, a bit like a Kundalini type awakening, where they felt that there was a you know strange energy um, flowing through their bodies, uncontrollable energies, and some physiological disturbances, some pains, and unexplained physical uh, reactions, also psychological disturbances. You know, some people found it difficult to to function in normal society. They found it difficult to speak to other people, uh, to hold down a job, to maintain relationships, uh, and so on. So, the, yeah, the, the, there were challenging aspects. But I found that, um, you know, there was a kind of a natural process of integration, which could take months, sometimes even years. But people always did eventually come to a point of integration where they could bring their new awareness into their lives and they could function well in society again. And some of these people may have covered up the that experience with drugs and alcohol, right? You know, to try That's and cope. Right. That's right. Yeah, there was there were some really interesting cases of people who had had uh, spiritual awakenings when they were young, but because they didn't understand them, you know, there were only like one guy, a guy called Parker from Canada. He was eighteen when he, he underwent a sudden transformation after a period of, of uh, deep drug addiction. And suddenly he woke up one morning after thinking he was going to die of a drug overdose. He woke up one morning and was suddenly free of his addiction. You know, he had no idea why, but he just had no desire to take drugs anymore. 
And he, he was also filled with this feeling of well-being and trust and everything around him looked beautiful and intensely real. And he just knew that, you know, that phase of his life was over and that he somehow he was, a, he was a different person. But he was only 18. He obviously didn't know anything about spirituality. So he had no idea how to make sense of it or he had really no idea how to, how to understand what had happened. So he went to see a, see a psychiatrist, which is probably the worst thing you can do <laughs> in, the, in this situation. And the psychiatrist said, "Ooh, you've obviously undergone some kind of, um, you know, some kind of uh, psychi- psychotic counter reaction. The neural pathways in your brain have probably dissolved away, or something like that." So we, the psychologist explained it as some kind of psychotic episode, even though he felt so fantastic. So he started to think, "Oh, yeah, m- maybe there's something wrong with me, or maybe there's just some kind of weird neurological imbalance." So he sort of suppressed it and put it to the back of his mind. And tried to live a normal life, you know, forgetting about it. But eventually, you know, he became, because he repressed it, he became very depressed um, years later. And eventually, the, the original experience kind of burst through again. It kind of exploded inside him again. Because you, you, you can repress these experiences for a certain amount of time, but they always come back. They're so powerful. They're so authentic and real that they always burst forth again. Right. You can't push them down. What about this? I'm curious about what you think of, I've read and talked to people who have made complete life shifts after an encounter with one certain person. Like for some reason, a complete stranger could come up to you and say, you know, what are you doing with your life? Or, Or tell you something so profound that it triggers a shift. And some people will call those experiences like encounters with angels or something like that. Is that a different kind of transformation experience? Um, yeah, it's not something that's um, kind of I focused on in my research. I, I think that can sometimes happen with teachers. You know, I, I've heard stories about inspirational teachers at school who just sense something inside you and direct you in a certain path, and they make you, they they allow you to uncover your potential. So, yeah, certainly those experiences can be incredibly life-changing and transformational. And, and sometimes they can unlock deeper aspects of your being that you've repressed. So I think there, there, there were some cases in my book of, um, you know, as we were just saying, people who've repressed their original awakening, then they would meet somebody, for example, a, a spiritually developed person, maybe even a spiritual teacher, who would me- enable them to recognize that they had undergone an awakening. And that would kind of, you know, put them in touch with their the spiritual self that they'd repressed. Right. That person caused or or triggered something in them. Some people Mm -hmm. say that it could be an angel. I don't know. Do you think that's, that's such a thing? It's possible. I used to be a bit (laughs) skeptical about angels and that kind of thing, but I'm not anymore because, you know, just partly, partly, partly as a result of writing this book, because I met some people who, who were very kind of rationally minded, kind of skeptical people, scientifically minded people who had um, seen angels and strange beings. There was one story in my book of a, a father who went through the incredibly traumatic experience of watching his daughter die. She had an allergy to, um, I can't remember what it was, but she had a sandwich containing nuts, I think it was, that she was allergic to and had an allergic reaction. And while he was watching, paramedics were trying to save her. And for a moment, it looked like she was going to return to life and going to regain consciousness. But then he saw five or six angelic beings around her body. And he describes them in quite vivid detail. 
And then when he saw these beings, he knew that she was going to die. He knew that they had come for her. But, you know, so he, as I say, he was a very kind of skeptical, scientifically minded person and it completely changed his view of reality. So now, now I am open to the uh, existence of angels. I think it's, you know, it's very, it would be very arrogant of us to assume that the reality we perceive with our normal awareness is all there is. Right. And there are, and, and for us to think that there aren't other beings or, or entities in, in another universe or realm of consciousness that we can access. Yeah. Even spirits. I'm open to the existence of uh, deceased spirits because I'm aware of loads of really high level research with mediums, you know, where mediums have got really fantastic results in very carefully controlled scientific studies. There's no other way of explaining the results except in terms of, you know, they have got, they have managed to um, contact real spirits. Yes. Well, I appreciate your answer because you're a very smart guy and I wanted to get your take on this because <laughs> I'm still personally looking for an angel. I would love to see one. I, I haven't yet, but I'm I'm open. Yeah. Maybe they're there around you. Maybe they're right. helping you, but you know, maybe you can't sense them, but they're there. Right. Well, uh, well yeah, I, I want that. I want that to be the case. So <laughs> I, I appreciate your answer on that. So I was curious also in your research that did you find any particular part of the brain that is affected when these awakenings occur, like a theory of a physiological effect or reason? Not really. You know, I, I, I explain it in psychological terms or spiritual terms. So I've never, as a psychologist, I've never really been interested in neurological factors because for me, the mind is not a physical thing. It's not, you can't reduce the mind to neurology. People have been trying to do that for years. They've been trying to try to explain how the brain produces consciousness or how the brain produces thoughts. But I don't think it does. I, think, I don't think the consciousness comes from the brain. I think consciousness is a fundamental thing in the universe. And the brain, the brain sort of channels consciousness. I think the main role of the brain is to pick up this fundamental consciousness or universal consciousness and to channel it into our individual beings. A bit like a radio transmitter. In a radio receiver. Right. So the brain is more of a receptor, something that we have that is able to accept these kinds of energy frequencies or information yeah. from from that realm. That's right. Yeah. The brain is like a, like a radio transmitter. Right, right. So the brain and the mind are, are two different things. I just wondered if there was any part of the brain or, or something that is activated when these experiences occur, mm. which which might be true it's possible i mean psychedelic studies have shown that there are certain patterns of brain activity um under psychedelics normally under psychedelics the brain becomes less active which is interesting so it's, it's almost as if the brain as the brain becomes less active it allows more reality in you know it allows us a, a wider glimpse of reality right right that makes sense one of the things in the book that you suggest that we can apply that people learn these shifters from their experiences, one of the things we can apply to our own lives is to contemplate our own death. Encounters with death can lead to spiritual awakening. And, and this is something people are not going to want to do. <laughs> They're not going to want to think about, about their own deaths. But what is, what is uh, something that's very, very, very powerful about that, about realizing? I remember as a kid, and I'll never forget this, maybe this was a peak experience I was maybe nine, eight or nine, and I was looking at the wallpaper on my wall, and it was this weird kind of 
yellow. I picked this color called yellow submarine. It was the seventies. Anyway, <laughs> I remember looking at it and thinking someday I won't be here. I'm going to die. And I, mm. and I got this weird feeling kind of like, I don't know if you ever read Ramana Maharshi kind of having that feeling mm-hmm. of death. Yeah. And I, I got very scared and I, and I thought, and I ran to my mother and I said, I'm going to die. And she's like, no, no, you're not dying right now. But I remember having that feeling of realizing in my little yeah. world that that will end someday. And I hadn't thought about it before. Mm. But what do you think is powerful about contemplating that? It's, it's really important to, to contemplate mortality. And some people in my book underwent transformation simply be, by being forced to contemplate mortality, like through through being diagnosed with cancer. One woman said that it was the first time she'd ever been aware of the reality of death and everything changed. You know, once you become aware of the reality of death, you become aware of how precious and how temporary the world is and how fragile life is. And therefore it becomes, becomes precious. The people in your life become precious because you know that they are temporary beings just like you. And you stop taking things for granted, basically. Everything becomes a, a source of appreciation. The smallest things in life become incredibly valuable. And also, um, becoming aware of death, it detaches you. You know, It makes you less attached to ambitions, to possessions, to status. You realize how ephemeral and, and trivial these things are. They're not important at all. So in doing so, you kind of you strip yourself down and you gain contact with your spiritual essence. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I love to go to cemeteries. Not Me for too. any morbid. Not for any morbid reasons, <laughs> but um, cemeteries, they're, they're always peaceful, beautiful places, but also, you know, they are places where you become aware of your mortality. I always feel like the, the dead people are saying to me, you know, life is temporary, life is precious, life is fragile, you know, make the most of it. Don't take it for granted. It's, it's a gift, you know, so don't waste the gift. Right. That's their message. I love yeah. that too. I love to go to um, those kind of places and, and it is very quiet and, and beautiful, I don't know if you do this. Do you ever subtract like the the dates to see like the ages that they died? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and then and I usually... average it to my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> how many years do I have? Well, this person had this, you know. Yeah, we well, usually, if it's in the past, their, their lifespans are shorter, aren't they? And if it was in yes. the 19th century. So even that is a source of appreciation. You think, wow, I'm lucky to live in this era where, you know, there's, you know, a lot better healthcare and hygiene and, you know, we, we can live for longer. I read about this famous epitaph. You might've heard about this where it says, as, as you walk, so did I, as I lay here, so will you prepare yourself to follow me or something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing that yeah. was written on a gravestone and that kind of reaches out and taps you on the shoulder, you know, like, Oh, you mean I'm going to be where you are someday. You were walking the earth. Like I did now, like mm. I am now. Yeah, it stops you taking life for granted. I think taking life for granted is one of the biggest um, malaises that human beings suffer from. It's so easy for us to switch into a mode of familiarity and taking for grantedness. And, you know, just being aware of death can snap you out of that. You think, wow, you know, it's, it's only, I'm only going to be here for a short time. And, you know, all of these things are temporary. And even the world itself is temporary. All of, all of the beauty around you is just a, a temporary phenomenon. So you have to enjoy it. Do you think that we're isolated from that experience in the West? 
because we don't mm. see it. Many of us don't live in multi-generational homes where you see someone die like they used to. Like they would have a room in a house in the parlor where you could fit a coffin, right? And, yeah. and that's not the case anymore. In some older houses, they have that. That's what do you think true. we're missing uh, in that? Well, yeah, it's a shame, really, because death has become a taboo subject. We are shielded from it by hospitals and mortuaries and so on. So we are missing, you know, that that contemplation of death. I think in, in the Victorian era, people used to, uh, some people used to keep a, a skull on their bedside table or on their desk. Or some a people skull? Would wear lock- yeah, to remind themselves that of death. Some people would wear lockets with the hairs of their, 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 their lost loved ones. So people were very aware of the reality of death. And I think it probably informed their lives and, and probably had a, I mean, a positive effect on their lives. Right. It was around them more and they, they were able to see it. And I think we are missing that. One, one thing that struck me, I have a, a good friend that actually has a crematory business. That, that's mm-hmm. her business. And I had never seen bodies like that. And what struck me was that when you go into a cooler and you see these people stacked up, they just seem like they're shells like that's an empty husk and that the person is not there. So I wasn't, I wasn't scared or creeped out being around them because it just seemed like that was what had been holding them during the time they were here on earth. Mm. And it was, Mm. it was very profound to kind of walk in there and see that. And of course she doesn't think anything of it and goes about the business, you know, puts them in and does what she has to do. Yeah, well, I think that's that's another thing we've missed by not being in contact with um, with death. Because if you do, if you witness somebody dying, as people would do frequently in the past, you do sense that you know the soul or the spirit. It doesn't, you know, it, it sort of it leaves the body. It's somehow distinct from the body, so it gives you a sense that there is something else. That I mean, it happened to me a month ago. My mother-in-law, my wife's mother, died, and we were there at the moment that she passed. And somehow it was as if, yes, she suddenly became an object, just, you know, her spirit or soul left and suddenly there was nothing there. She was completely empty. But it gave us a sense that, you know, her spirit did not disappear. It was somewhere else. You know, it it had left the body. So it really gave, gave me a sense of some form of continuation, some form of afterlife. Right. I was with my mother when she passed and I remember looking, looking up. And I know this is crazy to think of that at that moment, but I remembered a book that I read that there was an experiment with people having NDEs where they would put something on the ceiling. And then when these people came back there, have you read that study? And they would see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for, as that, that moment, I was thinking, are you, are you there? Can you see me where you are? Hmm. Uh, And I don't know, maybe I'll find out when I see her again, if she did see me and she'll say, why were you looking up like that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that, if that will be the, if that will be mm. the case. Um, but th- it's just so fascinating to to talk about these concepts. And I just wanted to touch a little bit on some of the, the steps that you offer the process for us to harness our own, our own transformational power. And And we've talked about a couple of them where, you know, acknowledging what's going on, um, observing your thoughts. I mean, do you do that a lot? They call it being the witness. Do you think that's really helpful in, you know, being able to accept things as they are? 
Definitely, yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very helpful in dealing with any situation of turmoil, any degree of trauma. Because one of the, one of the things which causes post-traumatic stress is identifying with your thoughts and feelings. A lot of people don't realize that they are not their thoughts and feelings. A lot of people don't realize that there is a part of them which can step back and, and observe their thoughts and feelings. But when you do that, when you do step back and begin to observe or witness your thoughts, they lose their power over you, you know, but you disidentify with them. And you realize that there is a part of your being which is free from the negativity of thoughts. So it's, 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 it's a tremendous step towards liberation. And I think that's probably one of the purposes of meditation is to, to learn to step back and observe your thoughts, to disidentify with the ego mind. Right. And be able to just look and see and accept the, the situation as it is. Your book is so fascinating and, and important. I really hope that people pick this up and read it. You know, at the end, I have to ask you about this. You say that there's signs of a collective awakening for us as a society. Is that really true? Because I'm looking around and I don't know if that's true. I want to believe that we are evolving to a state of awakening as a society. It may be slow process, but in, but in your research, you, you think that this is true. I do. Maybe it sounds a bit utopian, but I, I do believe it. It's not just a, a, you know, a recent phenomenon. I think it's been going on for possibly 300 years or so, probably since the end of the second half of the 18th century. Uh, there's been a, it's, difficult, it's difficult for us, for us to imagine what life is like before the 17th century. In most parts of the world, life is incredibly brutal, incredibly hard. People were quite ruthless and cruel, naturally. That was just the way things were. But in the second half of the 18th century, there was this new wave of compassion and connection and empathy, which, which kind of emerged. And that's been growing ever since. And in recent decades, there's been this amazing phenomenon of spirituality in the West. It's become incredibly powerful, this wave of spiritual development or this wave of interest in spiritual paths and practices. I think it's probably the most significant cultural trend of our time. It seems to be increasing exponentially. And there is also research showing that spiritual experiences are more common now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. They seem to be becoming more common as time goes by. And in my research, I'm constantly amazed at how many people go through this transformation, how many people experience transformation through turmoil. I always have this strong feeling that it's much, much more common than most people realize. And because most people, a lot of people don't understand what's happened to them. They're kind of walking around secretly spiritually awakened without telling anybody about it. So I think it's incredibly common. And also the fact that this, this new self, this spiritually awakened self, it seems to be dormant, just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. It's kind of fully formed. It's just like a, like a chick which is ready to hatch from an egg. And it seems to be emerging in so many people around the world. It's almost as if it's there within the human race as a whole and just waiting for the opportunity to emerge in more and more people. So despite all of the negative trends which are occurring in the world, and, you know, of course, there are many of them, I am optimistic. Do you think this could be what I've read described as a divine chaos, kind of like th hmm. the storm and then we push through it? Is this a necessary growth period for us to really awaken? Yeah. When it's, it's, you know, I talk about this in the book, that it's, it's the same as you know, when individuals go through spiritual awakening in the midst of turmoil. It's the same thing that we're undergoing as a species. You know, collectively, 
we're going through a great deal of crisis and turmoil. And collectively, it's having an awakening, awakening effect on us. It's a bit like a person who's diagnosed with cancer. Suddenly they have to face the reality of death and everything changes and they have a different perspective on reality. You know, we're facing dangers as a species that probably are waking us up. We're realizing the, the enormity of our predicament and we're realizing the, the enormous effect that our own behavior has on the world as a whole. And we're beginning to realize that, you know, we can only, um, we can only deal with these problems by cooperating and connecting. And really, we can only deal with these problems by shifting into a, a different perspective. I think, you know, really, spiritual awakening is the only solution to all of the problems we're going through. Right. I read an author that had described humanity as evolving to be homo luminous. He thinks that we're going to evolve to be light beings. What do you think? Well, <laughs> is that <depends>. possible? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what, exactly what they mean, but, you know, um, there's definitely a sense of light which emerges in spiritual awakening. You know, I, I think light is one of the fundamental qualities of consciousness itself. You know, if you, if you, could, if you could perceive universal consciousness in its pure form, and people sometimes do in mystical experiences, they perceive it as light. You know, near-death experiences, people talk about light. Mystical experiences, people talk about light. So light is the, you know, the fundamental, uh, the most essential and purest thing in the universe. So as we go through spiritual awakenings, in a sense, we gain more and more contact with the light. We become the light more and more. So right. in that sense, I think that's true. Like the person that I described at the beginning of our talk, Immaculate Illabagiza, when you're around this person, she does emit a light in a hmm. way, a calmness, a presence around her. So maybe he's right that we are going in that direction. That would be pretty cool, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I say, I'm, I'm optimistic. <laughs> yes, you're, you're very optimistic. I like that. It's been so wonderful to chat with you about this. And I just uh, would like to know what, what are your plans uh, for the, the new year? And uh, what do you hope people take away from reading Extraordinary Awakenings? Uh, on the one hand, I hope that they become aware of the, the amazing resilience which is inside them, even if they're not consciously aware of it. I think all human beings have this amazing resource of resilience and power, spiritual power inside them, which we don't normally gain access to in ordinary life. It's usually only when we're tested by, you know, by challenge and, and, and trauma. And, and also, you know, um, turmoil and trauma always arise in our lives at some point. It's just part of being human. We're all going to go through bereavement. We're all going to face other difficulties and challenges. So I hope people people can sense that there is a, a positive aspect to crises and challenges. They do offer an opportunity for growth. So there's like a, a golden core within all the, neg all the negativity that they contain. So much hope in the book and such great stories that you share. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Diane. It's uh, been a pleasure. Great to speak to you. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.